News of the Times. Eccentric Sundays. The world of the Victorian paranormal. Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, we look at two noted personages who were involved in the English spiritualist movement. Annie Horniman. Annie was an important figure in the arts and drama worlds of Manchester and London, and also a regular astral visitor to planets within the solar system, and Daniel Douglas Hume, renowned psychic medium and clairvoyant in his day, as well as famed for his ability to levitate. The personages in today's episode were unique for their belief system or actions that fell outside the usual societal norm. This episode is not in any way designed to be an expose of practice of spiritualism, rather it is a focus on key individuals within the movement of the time. We really hope you enjoy the show. The Victorian spiritualism movement was a significant cultural and religious phenomena that emerged in the mid-19th century and continued through the early 20th century. It revolved around the belief that the living could communicate with the spirits of the deceased through mediums and seances. Victorian society was fascinated by the idea of communicating with the dead as it provided comfort to those mourning the loss of loved ones and promised hope of an afterlife. Mediums, often women, held seances where participants would gather in dimly lit rooms, holding hands and waiting for spirits to communicate. Table-turning and automatic writing were common practices during these sessions. Mediums claimed to be able to communicate with spirits who could convey messages or answer questions from the living. Spiritualist societies were established, and spiritualist newspapers and publications circulated, providing a platform for spiritualist beliefs and experiences. Our first noted personage is Annie Horniman, 1860-1937, eccentric factor, regular astral projection traveller to planets, most notably Saturn. The background. Annie was born and raised in Forest Hill in London, the daughter of a tea merchant. The Hornimans were the owners of the tea company Horniman and Company. Annie was privately educated and early on demonstrated a real interest in the arts. Annie became famous for founding the first regional theatre company in Manchester, as well as the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. Annie was friends with and encouraged the then new talents of George Bernard Shaw and Yeats. Many a poor writer of the day were given a chance by Annie's Manchester School of Dramatists. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn When Annie was thirty, 
she joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a secret society in its day focusing on contact with deities and magic. Both Wicker and Alistair Crowley's Thelema were part inspired by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which numbered quite a few well-known members in its day, including Yeats and Bram Stoker. In 1903, the order was undergoing severe internal strife, and Annie left and instead used that spare time to focus more on astral projection. For our listeners, astral projection, also known as out-of-body experiences, OBE, is a phenomenon in which an individual's consciousness or spirit separates from their physical body and travels to different planes or dimensions. During an astral projection, the person may feel as though they are floating or flying, and they can observe their physical body from a separate perspective. Annie's Astral Travels When Annie was not encouraging new writers and setting up repertory theatres, she liked to astral project to other planets. Her astral travels are recounted in the very wonderful book The Place of Enchantment and the British Occultism and the Culture of the Modern. From the book. In September 1898, two respectable Victorians met in a private house in London for the express purpose of travelling to the planets. One was an unmarried woman of impeccable reputation, Annie Horniman, and the other a conventional married businessman some three years her senior. On this occasion, the first of many such meetings, they decided to visit Saturn. Recording the episode in meticulous detail, Annie, in key respects, the more experienced of the two in such undertakings, noted that she and her companion facilitated the journey by using a particular coloured symbol, a circle of indigo on a white background, and proceeded via the performance of precise rituals and the invocation of names. The chronicle is presented in a matter-of-fact manner. The events although interesting and worthy of note, were at some level unremarkable to the astral travellers. We are told that the two travellers passed together through a hexagram and into the ray of indigo and white, thence travelling ever upwards before finally perceiving before them the great dark world of Saturn. What happened on Saturn whom they met and what they learned is set down in detail. So too is the simple observation that, having discovered what they had come to learn, the sojourners returned to earth, suffering only minimal side effects from their trip. Three weeks later, they were preparing to try Jupiter. Other planets were visitors, as was the sun. The terms astral travel and astral light 
make their appearance in documents of this time. In certain cases, the record keepers were interested in investigating the complex cosmology detailed by the great Elizabethan Megas John Dee. Great astral battles were fought, angels encountered, signs exchanged, and secrets imparted. Here is an account of travelling to Mars. On Thursday, the 20th of December, 1900, Soro Dio Date, Dorothea Hunter's group name, and a group of students met at 36 Blythe Road in order to investigate clairvoyantly the symbolism of the sword. We sat in a semicircle at the north side of the altar facing the south when Mars was in Virgo at the time. Diodate then made the invoking hexagrams of Mars round the room. We then mentally formulated the hexagram of Mars in red light at that point of the compass. The upper triangle appeared flaming, and an armed figure of somewhat earthly type appeared to look through it. We did not stop to examine this figure much, but went through the hex astrally and found ourselves in a region of flames where a gigantic male-clad angel appeared with winged helmet and a great flame-coloured wings from his shoulders. There was some diversity of opinion concerning his sword. Then we vibrated the names and rose in what we thought at first was a blade-shaped shaft of white light. We seemed to have been led through the path of Mars onto a solar plane. All the planets are but rays or differentiations of the sun. It is true, but some special teaching was evidently to be given to us by this abrupt transition from Mars. On a tour of Saturn in 1898, Annie states that she met a tall, dignified and winged man of Saturn. He was dressed in armour, and he and Annie had a long discussion in which he told Annie of his dying world. The winged gentleman was fearful of strangers, possibly due to his dying world. So Annie and her companion made themselves invisible to reduce his anxiety. In her later life, Annie did not astrally travel as she had. In 1933, she was recognised by King George V for her outstanding achievements in her support of the arts. It has been speculated that Annie is the only past or present member of an occult society to receive the award. Annie passed from this world on the 6th of August, 1937. From Annie's astral travels to various planets in our solar system, we move on to Daniel Douglas Hume, 1833-1886. Eccentric factor, levitations through open windows. Born in Scotland, 
Daniel was the third of eight children in a difficult, economically poorer family. His father, historically, was confirmed as the illegitimate son of the 10th Earl of Hume. His mother, Elizabeth, was reputed to have the gift of second sight, as did her uncle. In theory, this gift was passed on to Daniel. At the age of one, Daniel was passed to Elizabeth's childless sister Mary to be raised by her and her husband. A few years later, the family, including Daniel, emigrated to the United States, eventually settling in New York. Early Paranormal Hume had many stories to support his view that he had a special relationship with the spirit world. His cradle rocked itself when he was a baby. He had several visions in anticipation of friends and family deaths from afar. Houses in which he lived had continuous knockings and rapping. Objects moved by themselves. His adopted mother, his maternal aunt, was a religious woman and found the spectral haunting of their home to be potentially of demonic origin. It was also a source of gossip within the neighbourhood, causing mistrust and social ostracization. Ministers of different faiths were brought in to investigate the various wrappings and independent object movements. The blame was passed on Daniel as being possessed by the devil. Daniel was forced out of the home that he knew at the age of 18. Daniel's view of the manifestation was that they were the signs from God. For several years, Daniel travelled around New England, making his way financially by leading seances and as acting as a clairvoyant, which was highly successful and helped him to gain a name for himself. Hume's health had always been delicate, with a constant cough that was eventually diagnosed as consumption. Doctors suggested he move to England to improve his health, and Daniel arrived in England in 1885. It is here that his renown took form, and he became a paranormal celebrity. Daniel travelled extensively across Europe. His fame was such that he held events with Napoleon III, several from the Russian court, and Wilhelm II of Germany. From the Dundee Advertiser, the 7th of February, 1898. Daniel Dunglass Hume, Table Turning The High Priest of the Renaissance of Spiritualism was Daniel Dunglass Hume, usually described as the Spiritualist. He was born near Edinburgh in 1833, but left that district when only nine years of age, and went with his family to America. When quite young, he displayed what were called spiritual manifestations, and became acknowledged as a medium of exceptional power. Though he did not formulate any creed, he soon had numerous disciples, and spiritualism speedily numbered many thousands among its votaries. In 1855, 
Hume visited London and gave numerous seances. There, challenging the scientists to refute his allegations or prove that he was a mere conjurer. Hume's exhibitions of spiritualism were attended by Lord Broughton, Sir David Brewster, Michael Faraday and many other notable scientific men. Among the phenomena which Hume used most frequently was table wrapping, by which process it was asserted that the spirits answered questions put to them. Another was levitation, the raising of tables and articles of furniture from the floor without apparent muscular exertion. The mysterious power which Hume exercised was the cause of great excitement throughout the kingdom, and table wrapping became a fashionable recreation. In 1855, Hume made a tour through the continent and displayed his marvellous gifts before the principal sovereigns of Europe. He resided for several years in Russia, and in 1858, he married the daughter of a Russian nobleman who was a goddaughter of the Emperor Nicholas. She died in 1862 and Hume then lived for some time in Italy, but in 1864 he was ordered to quit Rome and denounced as a sorcerer there. He returned to England. Daniel's repertoire of paranormal manifestations, according to the PSI Encyclopedia London, Daniel's catalogue of manifested phenomena included raps or knocking sounds heard not just in the science table, but in all parts of the room, including the ceiling. Object levitations and movements, including the complete levitation of pianos and the movement and complete levitation of tables with several persons on top. Tables would tilt or move sharply, although objects on the table would remain stationary. Sometimes the objects would alternately move and remain in place in response to sitters' commands. The appearance of lights or luminous phenomena in various parts of the room the appearance of partially or fully materialised forms in various parts of the room, touches, pulls, pinches and other tactile phenomena occurred while the hands of all present were visible above the table. Auditory phenomena, such as voices and sounds, and also music occurring without instruments in various parts of the room. Earthquake effects, during which the entire room and its contents rock or tremble. The playing of an accordion, guitar or other musical instrument, either totally untouched and sometimes while levitated in good light, or while handed in such a way as to render a musical performance on the instrument impossible and most notably the reported ability to levitate around a room. The incident occurred in 1878, where reportedly he levitated several feet off the ground and through an open window 
he then floated back in. Harry Houdini dismissed Hume as a quack, stating that he too could appear to levitate around a room, although there was no confrontation between the two. Hume's fortunes changed on his return to England from his stay in Russia. From the Weekly Dispatch, London, the 5th of February, 1922. The man who entertained the courts of Europe, fame at 20 years. Born in Scotland in 1833, said to be a natural grandson of the 10th Earl of Hume, with a Highland mother gifted with second sight. He spends his childhood in America. He is delicate, nervous, and a seer of visions. Surrounded by the faithful who humoured and fondled him for his childish miracles, he adopts with a clarity the profession of a medium. America is too provincial for his talents. At the age of 22, he comes to Europe. His fame has preceded him. The great American medium, writes an English lady of fashion, turns the world upside down. Since the days when King Saul paid a clandestine visit to the old holy medium at Endor, crowned heads have always been patrons of necromancy. So in the 1850s we find that the kings of Württemberg and Prussia welcome Daniel Dunglas to their courts. British ministers at Madrid, Vienna and Constantinople throw open their parlours to him. His greatest triumph is in Russia, where he marries Alexandrina, the youngest daughter of Count de Kroll and goddaughter to the Tsar Nicholas. The fellow is a great lady-killer. Elizabeth Barrett Browning calls him her protégé prophet, and all the women in Florence, fascinated, sit at his feet. Old Robert Browning sees him with other eyes. He has no use for the fellow, is fed up with him and disgusted with his pretensions and sits down and writes Mr. Sludge, the medium. Unfaithful Friends It has always seemed that the spirits who played accordions for Daniel Dunglass wafted him through dining-room windows in the sight of the faithful, enabling him to handle live coats and generally assisted at his exhibitions, let him down very badly when he came before a court of equity. A few respectable spirits wrapping out their evidence in the witness box might have saved our unfortunate hero. The way of it was this. In October 1866, Hume, now aged 33, was down on his luck. The publication of Mr. Sludge had not done him any good. His wife had died, and her relations had brought a retention on her property. The fashionable world was tiring of him. But he had a few faithful friends left, and, to relieve his pecuniary embarrassment, the spiritual Athenium was started at 22 Sloane Street with a hundred five-guinea subscribers. Hume, as secretary, was living on the premises. 
The room in 22 Sloan Street is the first scene in the legal drama. Hume, the medium, is discovered. He is a graceful and mysterious figure, a most distinguished-looking man of the blonde type. He has beautiful hands and feet, fine teeth, good mouth, eyes that reflect the wisdom of the heavens, a voice rich of large compass, uttering spiritual sympathy to the afflicted, a gifted creature, Byronic, a slight shop-spoiled Don Juan. To him enters Mrs. Lyon, a foolish, vulgar old dame, lonely, obscure, and enormously wealthy. She too fancies herself as a medium. She has had her own trumpery, tin-pot spirit messages, so she says. She is fascinated by Hume, especially pleased with his glib talk of royal and aristocratic friends, being, like most dear old Victorian women, a thorough snob. There are séances. The widow lion is informed by the spirits of her deceased husband that he is the father of Daniel, and therefore Daniel is your son. The old lady relishes the idea of such a handsome son. She bestows on him a gift of thirty pounds right away, and the next day fifty pounds, and then proposes to adopt him, and he shall introduce her not only to new spirits in the vast deep, but also to all his fashionable friends this side of Jordan. Events move rapidly. Within ten days, the affair is settled. The half-cracked old lady sits down and writes her dear boy a letter expressing her greatest satisfaction in now presenting you with, and as an entirely free gift from me, the sum of £24,000. Mrs. Lyon, in her evidence, declares that the suggestion came to her from her husband's spirit via the mediumship of Hume. The next month, the fascinating son is adopted. Daniel Douglas Hume becomes Daniel Douglas Hume Lyon. He receives another £6,000, and in January 1867, another £3,000. There are many who still credit Daniel Douglas with abnormal powers. I, for one, do not doubt that he had qualities few of us possess. Within three months, to charm £60,000 out of the purse of a penurious old widow of 75 and become her adopted son with expectation of another 100,000. Eventually Hume's dream did not last. He was a restless vagabond and found the old lady peevish and tedious. I have sold my liberty, he signed, and it is not a bed of roses. So, Instead of trotting the old dame round to see his aristocratic friends in Mayfair, he went off on his lonesome to Brighton and Torquay for the sake of his health. The old lady was naturally disgusted. 
She gets anxious at his continued absence, and when her dearly adopted writes to her that he's off to a German spa and suggests that she should come with him to a far-off foreign land, her shrewd maternal instinct is affronted. She fears she is to be deserted. She consults lawyers. Hume is arrested and the next day is liberated on depositing in court the deed of gift. Hero or Villain The scene now shifts to the Court of Chancery. The story of Lyon versus Hume is extant and writ in the quaintest language of the Equity Reports. The trial in its day caused a buzz and a stir among the fashionable ones. Women thronged the vice-chancellor's court, and Hume was hero or villain according as one was a believer or unbeliever in his friends of the underworld. Hume lost much sympathy by setting up as a defence that the silly old woman had quarrelled with him and wanted her gifts back because he had refused to marry her. The talk was improbable. The court considered the suggestion was calumny, and Hume's counsel dropped the point. His client was wanting in chivalry, or he would never had pleaded it. In cross-examination, the medium swore that he was the subject of mysterious movements over which he had no control. The spirits moved him about bodily in violation of the ordinary rules of gravity, and did the same with chairs and tables in his presence. Also, he swore the spirits communicated with him by means of raps and spelt out messages through the alphabet. The way of it was that Hume ran through the alphabet and at the right letter the spirit gave a rap. Tense moments. Upon this, counsel suggested that an effort should be made to obtain evidence in this way from the spirit world on the subject matters of the action. Give me a knock, if you please, Mr. Hume, asked counsel persuasively. There was a dead silence in the court. A pause of moments. Never had the tricky spirits such a chance of converting the world of unbelievers. Never had a devoted disciple and medium been in greater want of the support of familiars. The shorthand writer sat breathless with poised pencil. The old judge dipped his quill in the ink. The tense silence grew insupportable. Not a rap. At length, Daniel Dunglas shook his head. I cannot do so, he murmured. The drama was over. At the end of the long trial, judgment was given by the Vice-Chancellor, declaring the gifts to be fraudulent and void. No one greatly pitied the half-cracked old fool whose erratic folly had caused all the bother. Nor did Daniel Dunglas lose many adherents, for his friends and followers continued to believe in those shy and elusive spirits who refused to be subpoenaed 
by worldly courts, but still played accordions and tilted tables in the drawing-rooms of the wealthy and fashionable. After this reverse, Hume betook himself again to Russia, and there, in 1871, he married another Russian lady of rank, and he died in Switzerland in 1886. Despite the controversy surrounding his abilities, Hume's impact on the spiritualist movement and Victorian society remains significant. He is remembered as one of the most famous and enigmatic mediums of the 19th century, leaving behind a legacy of wonder, curiosity and debate over the nature of psychic phenomena. To the end, he maintained the reality of his spiritualistic revelations. That concludes this episode of Eccentric Sundays, the world of the Victorian paranormal. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. We would like to thank our tremendous supportive subscribers. Thank you. And a huge thank you to helping us achieving our goal of 1,000 subscribers. We very much appreciate your help in keeping our channel alive. We would like to thank our tremendous supportive subscribers. Thank you. Your comments, suggestions and interaction is greatly appreciated. Thank you again. If you haven't subscribed, we would be very grateful if you did. We need a minimum of 1,000 subscribers to keep this channel alive. Please subscribe, tell your friends and share on social media. We would greatly appreciate it. We upload six days a week. Fridays are a new limited series called Forgotten Fridays, where we explore a snapshot from newspaper articles, advertisements and publications of a time from long ago. Saturdays are Serial Killer Saturdays, where we do an in-depth look at a serial killer from our extensive database. The time span of these ranges from as early as the mid-16th century to the 21st century and encompasses men, women, children and couples who kill. Sundays are eccentrics as we do an in-depth look at some of the quirky, unusual, notable and bizarre characters from Great Britain, which offers up a rich supply to choose from. Mondays are murderous, where we investigate in-depth a historical murder. Tuesdays are twisted and usually involve a collection of stories based around a theme, such as stories of matricide or when employers go bad. Wednesdays are wicked in this new series that will explore outrageous organisations, bloody locations and shocking events with a bit of murder and mayhem sprinkled in. From all of us at News of the Times, thank you again for watching or listening. This has been News at the Times, and I am Robin Coles.